Hello and welcome to episode 4 of Dining with Our Ancestors, where we explore what those who passed their genes to us ate in an attempt to better understand ourselves. Today, it's Victorian Britain, where Jimmy knew his younger brother was ill. Mum had told him he couldn't go to school anymore. His mother was never teary. Today, she hid her face with one hand and dragged him along musky street in the other, approaching any man in an appropriate looking suit. The many turned their nose up at their filthy rags, barely covering her shameful skeleton. The few made a joke about how she might cost for an hour, as one grabbed her by the cheek to assess her facial features before sniggering to his mate that she couldn't have even paid him. Her hand moved from her face to grab at her hat, in an attempt to protect her grease-laden hair from total exposure. She daren't catch Jimmy's eye. It was her who had brought him into this world, and it was her who had to throw him headfirst into an even darker passage. A better life she could only define as having more food on the table. Her decision to sell Jimmy into the smoke that engulfed the city achieve it. You can expect to learn what a typical chimney sweep ate, how long a workday was, and was he allocated a lunch break. What were more broadly Victoria pay and conditions like? How did this contribute to the wider industrial revolution? What would a typical Victorian family eat daily? How is this prepared in the same terraced houses that litter the UK today, but without modern technological proficiencies? How did the practice of chimney sweeping become abolished? And what impact did literature and poetry have? And finally, was it all for nothing? Did Jimmy's brother get better? Did he make a better life for him, his mum and his father? The Victorian period was a miserable time to be poor. Assistance was only awarded to people who could earn a living, however meagre that living might be. Those who would not or could not work were treated as an underclass whose impoverished state was akin to a criminal offence. Individuals who found themselves on the bottom rung of the social ladder had very few options. They could subject themselves to the inhumane conditions of the local workhouse, or they could take their chances on the street, finding shelter in slum housing. This is the conundrum that faced the Jones family. The proud parents and the two young boys were lucky enough to be able to call London their home. Whatever image that conjures in your mind, be it Parliament Square, Big Ben or Knightsbridge, the reality was that life was lived in subordination to these vast imperial monuments and that which they represented. <coughs> it is this London that this family inhabits. During Queen Victoria's reign, numerous slums lurked behind the capital's busy thoroughfares. Vicious and cro- crowded hovels were sandwiched in between Mile End Road and the commercial road in Stepney. Wretched rookeries lay behind Drury Lane, and filthy tenements lined the west side of Borough High Street. Victorian authorities were very happy to hand over the problem of social housing to private landlords. These men and women, often from impoverished backgrounds themselves, were given free reign to control the districts in which they operated, with very little interference. Consequently, they became the godfathers of their territory, providing houses for criminals, operating brothels and running illegal gambling rackets. Any unwelcome attention was swiftly dealt with by a bribe. It is from this environment, through this mirage of morality and opportunity, that Jimmy's mother was, over a meagre dinner, 
to rest her faith in her family's survival on her six-year-old boy. Jimmy was of average height for his age, a shining twinkle in his eye not yet dampened by the filth that permeated the London air. His cropped yet curly hair made him look a class above his station, something the girls in his class reminded him with regularly hearty glances. His mother had always taken great care in presenting him as her diamond in the rough. A mother gets only several chances at delivering the gift of creation onto the world, and of this one she was especially proud, although tonight fear was her overbearing emotion as she summoned herself together for what could be only described as a meagre table spread. The kitchen itself was a corridor of sorts and used only for cooking, washing up, scrubbing vegetables and all the messy low status activities that involved water were done in the scullery. Even the smallest Victorian houses had a separate scullery and it was rare for sinks to be installed in kitchens before the 20th century. Mrs Jones's walls were of plain plaster and bound by convention to be regularly whitewashed. A bag of laundry blue in a paint bucket imparted a faint blue tinge to the walls, which was said to repel flies and imparted a feeling of coolness to the room. While she had heard of homes with gas cookers, her preparation had to be done on the open fire. The strict repetitive options on the menu did not correlate so well with having two hungry sons and a husband working 15 hour days, as their dietary needs far exceeded what could be offered. This became somewhat of a boiling point for tensions, arguments and disorder to feast upon the family during meal times. Her husband knew no matter how hard he worked at the factory, he would come home in darkness to a meal that was forever underwhelming in its style and substance. Mrs Jones realised the breaking point they were at as she soared into autopilot during the creation of the same soup she had made for 30 days straight. Something had to give. She had wrestled with the idea of sending Jimmy away to work for months now. She had, they had all lost considerable weight from their already matchstick physiques. She couldn't bear the thought of speaking her idea out loud. Then it would become real. Mr Jones drudged in a claustrophobic front door, met not by his adorning children but by the waft of wafer-thin soup. Again, he sighed. He was daring the world to break its mundanity, its propensity for perpetual continuation. That cycle was broken. No sooner had he walked in the door and condemned his taste buds to a liquid dinner that his wife had presented him with her harrowing idea. He too knew deep down they could not afford to go on any longer, not with a sick child. He too did not speak so as to not need to confirm it. She would tell Jimmy in the morning, said Mrs Jones, that she, he would not need to go to school that day. That was all. The silence that lay the dimly lit dining table, designed for two but containing four, was only ever broken by the occasional slurp of the brown water they hunched over. Mrs Jones kept the tears out of her eyes, which ironically, if they had dropped into her soup, might have added some flavour. As the overbearing question was... Would it be worth selling one of her children's innocence to protect the other one's sustenance? At the beginning of the 19th century, almost all food was still produced locally, and since four-fifths of the population lived in the countryside, they had ready access to it. As people began to move into the cities, however, it became imperative to find new ways to transport and store food. 
the arrival of the railways made it possible to move the basic English foodstuffs, flour, potatoes, root vegetables and beer at speed and over great distances. Other innovations that made distributing food easier included lifelong products such as condensed milk, dried eggs and soups. Britain's first large-scale meat canning factory was set up in 1865. In the 1870s, almost every middle-class kitchen had a tin opener, in a time of immense wealth disparity. Some had to go to unimaginable lengths to secure a morsel of what others took for granted. So let's join Jimmy after he's been dragged kicking and screaming from his mother, and get a glimpse into the life of a chimney sweep to see if the toiling improved his family's condition. Jimmy had left the house with the warm palm of his mother's hand gripping his own, yet was now being dragged to a stranger's house by the scruff of his collar by a baroque-looking gentleman. He was instructed what he was to do, and it seemed simple enough, although he couldn't quite tell if this man was joking or if it was a game. The living room he found himself in was the first living room he had seen, and it was the size of his entire house both floors included. He felt that this couldn't be a serious job, nor a serious home, but a stern look from a hardened face above encouraged him. He wasn't joking in the slightest. The gate of the fireplace that lay before him was roomy. It was one that over time he would look back fondly on, the beginner's luck shining down on Jimmy as the crevices he would need to crawl in over the coming years would shrink ridiculously. A society which shoves children up chimneys cares little about regulating the size of them. Jimmy clambered up the chimneys as instructed, with brushing and scraping tools that knocked the soot from the chimney lining. He was also equipped with a metal scraper and small brushes to remove hard tar deposits. After crawling to the top, he slid back down and collected the soot pile which the master sold to farmers as fertiliser. If at any point he showed reluctance to climb, his master would not be afraid to hold a torch under their feet, where the phrase light a fire under someone originated. This ritual of dangerous humiliation spanned his waking existence, working from dusk to dawn each day. A man who can paint a thousand pictures with a single of his words and something I share very little in common with other than namesake, William Blake, wrote a poem titled The Chimney Sweeper, which epitomises the despair that little Jimmy's life had just become. Blake wrote two versions of each poem, critiquing the duality of existence that defined becoming of age in a religious Victorian Britain. The songs of innocence poems concern themselves with purity, youth and vitality, where the characters are enshrouded in nature. However, the songs of experienced poems introduce the children to the city, where mean and impressive forces extinguish their natural enthusiasm in service of the Industrial Revolution. A little black thing among the snow, crying weep, weep in notes of woe. Where are thy father and mother, say? They are both gone up to the church to pray. Because I was happy upon the heath, and smiled among the winter's snow. They clothed me in the clothes of death, and taught me to sing the notes of woe. And because I am happy and dance and sing, 
they think they've done me no injury and are gone to praise God and his priest and king who make up a heaven of our misery. Within the chimney sweeper, a little black thing among the snow, Blake explores troubling themes of childhood, suffering and organised religion. The latter comes into the poem in the last line as a speaker, a young child, describes the way that those with power turn to God but turn their backs on him. Their religion allows him to ignore the child and all those like him. The poem suggests that the church also took the child from his youth and happiness while absolving the guilty of their guilt and sins. There is an appropriately intense amount of suffering in the short poem. The child's voice comes through loud and clear, making that suffering even more real as he speaks about his lost happiness and how he places the blame at the feet of the church. The overwhelming burden of his daily responsibilities prevented Jimmy from reminiscing too much about his mother's cooking. He convinced himself that was the reason anyway. But the rumble of his stomach was still his prime mover. And fear too. The men he swept for were egregious at the best of times. Repulsed by the sight of a squalid squirt not having earned the right to gallivant through their hallways. Instead, they had to accommodate this pesky, filthy boy for all of one hour, allowing him to crawl about their musky chimney seemed about right to them. His employer, whom he knew only as sir, fed and watered him only as a means to ensure efficiency. Boy too weak to move is not a boy that can work. Boy too fat is not one that can climb. A happy medium of very little ensued. This particular cabin was so constricting that Jimmy's frame, which had shrunk and grown accustomed to contortion in the last few weeks, was actually a more skilled worker than he was ever to be given credit for. You can have lunch when you're finished, boy, he heard echo so loudly around the brick that it nearly knocked him from his clustered perch. This isn't finished by the time I get mine, we're lighting the fire, he laughed as he pulled away from the sordid sotol gathering his senses, dusting his lapels and painting on a grin for the homeowners he had been invited to dine with for securing such an efficient sweeper. Shall we? said the lady of the townhouse, skirting over the bare rock, being careful only to walk on every other wooden beam as to avoid bad luck. Mrs Lancaster's husband was an MP, a man of considerable sideburns and stout proportions, but a foul temper. He did not stick out as being particularly any of the three in the House of Commons, yet placed in the pomp and porcelain of his dollhouse, he looked quite ridiculous as the trio sat at the table set for twenty. Mr Lancaster rang the bell, initiating the dining proceedings. The tea arrived seconds later, accompanied by the finest sugar. The hand-painted bone china was tilted for them by a rugged but honest-looking lady, who really conveyed the idea that she too wanted to put her hands on her hips, just like the teapot. Yet she poured three cups and scurried away, waiting for her next call. Now we get to business, Mr Lancaster said. They're trying to push a motion in the house. I wanted to warn you. Well, the Chimney Sweep Act, 1875. Ah, they're going to reduce the age. I always lobbied for that. Not exactly. They're pushing for abolition. The master sweep sat open-mouthed, 
wider than any chimney he ever sent Jimmy up, perfectly timed for the entrees to make the rounds. The same lady had swapped her tea tray for a large silver platter laden with three ceramic circles she had to wrestle down in an elegant fashion. It's, um, it's Duck Puff, yes, we know what it is, do hurry up, Lancaster growled. The first few forkfuls were accompanied by nothing other than silence, as Mrs. Lancaster pretended to cast her eyes around a room she had seen so many times before that it was impossible something new had caught her fascination that she had not noticed before. Eventually, Jimmy's employer swallowed with a gulp and managed, on what grounds, how likely is it? Well, you know that I know that this trade is for the greater good. We are giving the down and outs an opportunity to earn money, to contribute to society rather than watch it go by them from the gutter. You and I know that. The House, they are not so convinced. The general consensus is that these children have rights. They have a bloody well right to do as they're told. The master sweeps spat. Yes, like I said, you know where I stand on this privately. Privately? So you won't defend your right to a clean chimney in public. Two hundred years of this British tradition. What's next for Parliament? A woman Prime Minister? Even the rich, butter-like texture of the parface willing around her mouths was not enough to reignite the conversation. Usually, discussing the depth of each other's refined palates was a go-to of Mrs Lancaster's in more tiresome company. The figures are pretty damning, began Lancaster with a wipe of a napkin across his naked chin, placing his fork on his now empty plate. Is life lived on paper? Do we draw by numbers? How can we calculate what a life is worth when we all contribute so vastly differently? The master sweep began. I've told you, I know this. The motion won't go ahead for a few months yet. I just wanted to let you know as a matter of custom. A knock at the door called the end of round two. As the accompanying maid said the boy was finished sweeping. I'll be the bloody judge of that. Do excuse me. Thank you for your hospitality, but we have more clients today. He got up, shaking one pair of hands and kissing the other on his way through the open door. Boy, he barked on his re-entrance to the living room. The pile of soot appeared sufficiently black enough in the once silver bucket. Sir, may I have something to eat now finished? He caught the small crusted ball of bread thrown over arm at him from across the room, scurrying after it as it rolled to the other side. Like a cat with a ball of string, he couldn't contain his excitement as he pounced on the spherical crumb that could have doubled as an international cricket ball. You have two minutes, boy. He heard as he sat looking out across the fog, hugging the mildew gardens, holding back tears at the reminder of how far from home he was. Before we explore whether Jimmy's mum made the right decision and proved her lot by sending her son to work, it is important to remember that Jimmy and his fellow impoverished child in London were not the only kids met with this fate. We've practised in other large European cities too, yet in London the chimney sweeps usually fared the worse. Not only because the competition was keener, but because the chimneys were smaller and taller. Unfortunately, especially in London, Master, ch master chimney sweeps kept as many children as they could keep alive. Many sweeps didn't want to spend more than would keep each child moving and earning money. Jimmy's master sweep, like so many others, 
kept all of his apprentices in rags and non had shoes. To save money and to keep them small so they could climb small chimneys, he fed them as little as possible. Children would work long hours, even the youngest of them, at five or six years old. Most sweepers didn't like them below the age of six because they were considered too weak to climb or work long hours and they would go off, die, too easily. But at six they were small, strong enough to work and not likely to die straight away. Each child was given a blanket. The blanket was used during the day to haul soot after cleaning a chimney. The blanket was used as a quilt on the night time. The regular nighttime scene was one of Jimmy and his companion apprentices sleeping on either straw or on top of a blanket full of soot, usually huddled together for warmth. This was so common that it had a term, sleeping in a black, because the child's clothes, skin and the blanket were all covered with soot. The legally binding apprenticeship agreement, which often made the master sweeps legal guardians of the children, outlined they should be given a weekly bath. Some did. However, some were never bathed, and many followed a more common custom of three baths per year, at Whitsuntide, Goose Fair and Christmas. Jimmy's master sweep had washed his apprentices in their own local river, the Serpentine, until one of them drowned. Then, the children were discouraged from bathing in it. If a master sweep had several apprentices, the older ones would walk the streets calling for clients. They would do this on their own. If someone hailed them for a job, they would either fetch the master's journeyman to handle the transaction, or they would do it themselves and bring the money back to the master. Depending on their circumstances, people tended to wait as long as they could before having their chimneys cleaned to save on the expenses. For the child, this meant that when they were sent up the chimney, there was often a great deal of soot. As he scraped it above him and it came down on his head in that small space, it could surround his head and shoulders and suffocate him. There was a knock at the door. Mrs Jones's heart had had to reacclimatise the unlikely event that it was Jimmy over the past year. Her hope that she would ever see her son again dying with each rap. She pulled the door towards her, occupied only by this hope. Her eyes met his. The varnish of the glint in his eyes had been sandpapered away, striking a blow to her heart as she burst into tears. Here was a dirty, bedraggled actor of her son, but it was him all right. Even his shrill yet soothing voice, she had never forgotten the sound of, did not escape. His voice box lowered into a sooty grave and operating an octave down. She hugged him nonetheless and him her. That was a hug, the warmth. He had spent the last 365 nights, after 365 gruelling days waiting for. He took a seat at the table, as surprised to see his brother still alive, as his brother was to see him still alive. Jimmy could smell the soup brewing, a wry smile occupying his face for the first time in months. It had never smelled more flavourful. Mrs Jones excused herself, heading into the scullery to finish preparations. She could not contain her cries, despite her best attempts. With one hand over her mouth, the other holding her head to prevent it dropping to the floor in shame, she rocked back and forth. She twisted as she sank to the ground, 
trying to writhe away from the overbearing confirmation of her darkest fears. The three shillings she received for Jimmy had hardly lasted a week, but she wasn't to know, she wasn't to see him again, until Parliament had put a stop to it. She gathered herself together, spurred only on by the notion that she had two hungry young mouths to feed again. She grabbed the ladle, staring into the pot, wondering how she was going to stretch so little across so many. Only now she was without her trump card of being able to increase their household spending power, and in her attempts to do so, she had made her only fit child also lame in the process. Thank you for listening. As a wrap on the episode, I hope you've enjoyed. You have. It takes a lot of research and a lot of time to do this sort of thing, so I'd be greatly appreciative if you could share it with a friend, leave a rating. Um, yeah, thank you. Bye-bye.